As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Totally Football Show. Ding dong, the Super League is dead. Today, we look back on a league with the lifespan of a fruit fly and almost as much intelligence. How did this Perry's plan go so Perry's shaped? Why did they go off as half-cocked as John Wayne Bobbitt? And is this the greatest football humiliation since last week when one of them got bantered off by the Dulux dog? After that, it's back to the football. Where were we? Chelsea West Ham dueling for a top four spot. They meet each other this weekend. We look at that and a packed set of crowd-pleasing fixtures. Plus, the inter-totally quarter-finals begin. It's the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. UEFA and the footballing world stand united against the disgraceful, self-serving proposals we have seen from a select few clubs in Europe. Manchester United, a hundred years, born out of workers around here, and they're breaking away into a league without competition. It's not the sport of the success already guaranteed. It's not the sport and it doesn't matter if you lose. This cannot be allowed to happen. This is the front page of the Spanish sport newspaper, Marca. Super ridiculous. And the situation we have now is civil war in football. Honestly, we have to wrestle back the power in this country from the clubs at the top of this league. I think supporters up and down this country can stop this. I really do believe it. I want to apologise to all the fan supporters of Liverpool Football Club for the disruption I caused over the past 48 hours. Can you really progress with a project for a Super League with five or six teams? Uh, uh, to, to be frank and honest, no. The future of this project is now hanging in the balance. Hello, listener. Well, yes, here, here we are. It's Thursday morning, the 22nd of April. Back to looking forward to a weekend of regular football in a cosy, familiar league. and wondering, I guess, if it was all a crazy dream. Michael Cox is with us, zonal marking. Hello, Michael. Hi, James. Uh, Duncan Alexander, of what stats moniker are you going under at the moment, Duncan? Um, let's say up to Joe today. All right. And from The Athletic, Charlie Eccleshare. Hello, Charlie. Hi, James. How are you? I'm um, very well, thank you. 
Thank you. Uh, Michael, contrarian prize of the week for you for your seminal Why the Super League is Actually a Good Idea article on The Athletic, shortly after which the league actually collapsed. Uh, I mean, I didn't say why this Super League is a good idea. Certainly not. But I'm not as viscerally opposed to it, to a uh, European league as some people are. I think the, the current system we have with massively unequal domestic leagues is completely broken. The inequality between top and bottom is staggering. The fact that Bayern Munich and Juventus and PSG win the league seven, eight, nine times in a row, I think stretches the boundaries of competitive sport. Um, so there was, you know, some obvious elements of this plan, which meant that, I mean, I didn't see anyone who was enthusiastic about this. Um, and I think it's gone so badly that the idea of a Super League or a European League, whatever you want to call it, might be off the table for another decade, another generation, who knows. But um, I'm quite concerned about the glorification we've seen of the status quo this week. And I think that in itself could be quite damaging. Well, Canary Mark agrees with you. He says, supporting a team not good enough for the EPL and too good for the championship, ESL was the perfect storm for a Norwich fan. Who else is disappointed the breakaway never happened, Charlie? Yeah, I think, Michael, the really good point in Michael's article was... You know, the fact that if, if we were being offered kind of more equitable um, you know, domestic leagues, then clearly everyone would be all for that. I don't think anyone would oppose that. But that's not we're not really seeing that uh, on the table. So, you know, it, it's hard to get. Obviously, the demise of the European Super League was a good thing and hilarious. Um, but, you know, on the on the same week that you know the Champions League has been reformed, to preserve the status quo um, and, you know, it probably will come back in some form. It doesn't feel like quite the victory at, at this moment. Anyway, hopefully it will in the long term. Hmm. I'm, I must admit, for me, I thought Tuesday was brilliant. Monday, things had looked so bleak, but then we had that kind of come from behind win by our boys. It was a bit like <laughs> the end of War of the Worlds. You remember when the tripods are all defeated by the, you know, homespun bacteria, in this case played by a thousand Chelsea fans blocking the, the, the Fulham Road. <laughs> I do take your point, though, that, you know, it's not like the, the current situation and, and UEFA are particularly knights in shining armour, but I do feel that, I mean, it's a lot better than what would have happened. And the fact that these 12 clubs or the English big six have been knocked back means that there is perhaps, and we'll ask Adam Crofton this in a second, a chance that other concessions which they've wrangled in recent years and are wrangling at the moment might be knocked back a bit. But uh, Duncan? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the point is that if it had gone ahead, the, you know, the quality of the Premier League would have vanished because there'd been no incentive to finish high necessarily, um, as there is now. And also, I, I do agree with what Michael and Charlie just said, but there is also this idea that pre-recent times that there's never been... Uh, any kind of discrepancy, you know, this kind of golden era, which I don't think ever existed. I found a, an old clip of Jimmy Greaves the other week. Don't ask why I was looking for it, but um, on St. Greavesy in about 1987, and he comes out with a quote, something like, well, if, you know, if the season doesn't go well for the, any of the big five, they'll just get their checkbook out and sort it out. So there's all, you know, there has always been this kind of, this trend. I just think um, we we just got to hope that, the, the kind of mobilisation and the consciousness that emerges this week kind of continues and isn't I'm isn't wasted. Sure, that's going to happen, absolutely, 100%. <laughs> uh, Duncan, could you help us get our heads around a league that lasted only slightly longer than Ali Dyer at Southampton? Well, I'm available for PR for the ASL if they want, because um, their league lasted 71 times longer than the Anglo-Zanzibar War, which actually sounds quite impressive. 
but it's the shortest <laughs> war in history at 38 minutes, so it's not actually that impressive. So, um, you know, they were 67 days less than the Chilean miners were, were trapped. And obviously they got a trip to Old Trafford out of that, which I don't think any of the ESL clubs will. So, yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't the longest lasting thing, was it? In Leroy Rossini at Torquay terms, it was, you know, positively eons long, but in all other regards... Not so much. Anyway, well, how did it all unravel so quickly and what happens next? Are we just back to how things were before? Let's speak to Adam Crafton, who's literally just done a whole piece about this on The Athletic. You're listening to The Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power and part of The Athletic Podcast Network. Adam, thanks so much for joining us. Super League is dead. What was it that actually killed it? Um, I think three things killed it. Um, The first thing was that they... They intended to have a 15, well, 15 founder members of a 20-team league, and they only had 12. Um, and two of the two of the clubs that were missing were absolutely fundamental in PSG and Bayern. And, and they took this gamble that if the 12 clubs come out in support, PSG and Bayern will just have no choice whatsoever but to fall in line. And it just didn't work out that way. They'd, for, for various different political reasons, PSG couldn't really afford to get involved. And then Bayern from because of the structures in in German football, it was far more difficult for them. Um, So that was a gamble that failed. Um, The second reason was the the investment from JP Morgan, which was debt financing, it was underwritten against uh, and set against future broadcast revenues. But there wasn't a broadcaster that was on board, at least publicly. So so when, when the Super League needed the credibility of a broadcast partner to come out and say, you know, we're going to invest billions into this project and we're going to make it the biggest thing in the world. Nobody turned up. So that was the second issue. And then finally, I just don't think they foresaw that the major stakeholders, which are the head coaches and the players, the most handsomely paid people in football, hated it. And they were prepared to talk about it. And for the first time, you know, that I can remember, you had players at every major club prepared to go against their owners purely on the case of what they believed in, and also because they felt let down and exposed and as though they had to answer questions and justify actions um, on behalf of their owners that they hadn't participated in. Mm. And hadn't even been informed of, or so they say. Gazetta de la Sport, for example, just to give a very quick sample of the continental view, uh, this morning, Thursday, running with the headline, The English Saved Football, really highlighting the... Um, well, the, the the public announcements of Boris Johnson, but the, the government would seek to introduce legislation. But above all, so many pictures of Chelsea supporters of that age group, of course, Fiorentina Perez, out on the Fulham Road ahead of Chelsea's game <laughs> against Brighton. Is it too romantic to feel that that had an impact as well with Chelsea teetering at that point? I think it's being overplayed a little bit. I, I think whichever whichever group of people around this topic you belong to, you know, if you're a football fan, of course the temptation is to say this is a victory for the people, for the common man against the billionaire. And that's the really tempting way to frame this. Um, if you are a, a conservative politician in the UK, you're going to say we say football and you're going to play on that for the next five, ten years, hopefully not that long. Um and that's going to, that's the way that will develop over over the next few years. Um, and there's other stakeholders that, that will that will also uh, seek to frame it that way. I certainly think abroad, the scenes at Stamford Bridge played really well for those who were opposed to the Super League. It was, it looked like a revolt, um, a real riposte, 
real courage, really, because Chelsea Chelsea stood to gain from it. You know, the supporters who were standing up against it at the top six clubs, I think there's a lot of supporters in Madrid, for example, who just didn't see it that way, um, who were just thinking, well, look, I mean, we're going to get more money, we can sign Mbappe, we can sign Haaland, uh, we'll have our own little league, and, and it will be great. Um, and that's not, that's not everyone, but certainly that's how it's filtered abroad, that the English saved the day. Um, and to an extent, I do think it was the cumulative reaction of the different forces, um, players, coaches, ex-players, media, government, uh, fans, that sort of all those things came together and it just spooked the English clubs out of it. Adam, I just wanted to ask you, the, the impression you give there obviously is a very kind of rushed out, half-cocked plan, what with not all the members in place, no TV partner. Was the rush just the fact that they knew UEFA were announcing Champions League reforms. A lot of these clubs are in dire financial straits. I mean, why not wait until, you know, the plan is kind of fully formed or at least more formed than it was? Yeah, and that's, that's the thing that nobody can really get their head around. How can, how can 12 men who are so successful, who are so rich, execute this so poorly? That, you know, this plan, which has been the, you know, the, I suppose like the sword of Damocles hanging over European football as the big threat for, for decades and this was the moment they chose to strike and they just they did not have a plan there was no strategy for it other than we are really really successful and really powerful and therefore people will do what we want them to do and yeah I mean when it first dropped on Sunday you're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting and you're thinking well surely at some point you know one of the one of these owners is going to come out and they're going to deliver this blistering pitch and it's going to be fantastic mm. and they're going to be really impressive and at least there will be this attempt to win hearts and minds and it just never came. Mm. And 48 hours later, you, you just start to realise, like, you know, if you ever get imposter syndrome in your own job, just don't because, <laughs> because like, honestly, these guys who were the, the, the biggest, you know, this, this was the biggest threat that's ever been posed to you to the structure of European football and they have no idea how to put it off. Mm. Are we are we back now to where we were then Sunday morning, Adam? Or, or are we someplace a little bit better given that that sort of Damocles has effectively been removed? Um, I, I don't necessarily agree it's been removed because I think this has shown that, you know, if you... I, I think there's a way they could have got this through if they had a, a, a strategy for it. And if they were prepared, as Charlie says, to be that little bit more patient, get PSG on board. Um, that, might, that might have meant, you know, waiting until after the Qatar World Cup because I think one of, one of PSG's reservations was to go against UEFA and FIFA mm. ahead of that major tournament next year in Qatar. You know, would it have been a different position for PSG if this was a conversation in 2023 and 2024 you know but there was clearly a, a moment of real inflection that because you had Real Madrid and Barcelona in horrific debt um, the you know the bonus of all of a sudden receiving 350 million cash in hand this summer was very very appealing to them um, the Italian clubs clearly have issues in terms of institutional investment private equity that's coming into the sport in Italy, which means that those investors who have put money in, they want it back and they want it back doubled or multiplied. Um, and the Super League, the money from JP Morgan w would have been a fantastic way of resolving that. And, and equally, I think the clubs in the Premier League are starting to realise that the TV bubble, it's not burst, but that real growth that we've seen over the past 25, 30 years has started to slow down a little bit. Um, and when that slows down, 
the owners are looking at ways of how can we how can we have a guarantee of our income of our revenue streams every single year well the best way to do that is by being in the elite european competition but there's now too many big clubs in the premier league for you know if if you're arsenal or spurs or man united you're worried every year because there's no guarantee that you're getting into the champions league and getting that guaranteed revenue stream so they felt the best way to sustainability for their own clubs was to be part of this closed shop do you think um and this is a question open really to, to everyone do you think then that it's the case to introduce some sort of sanctions or punishments or points deductions against the clubs in the premier league that have tried this to dissuade them from what is essentially going all in but at no risk to themselves in the future um personally I think there'll be I think there'll be some you know some statement moves made things like you know removing some executives of particular Premier League or UEFA committees I think they'll find it hard to get back into UEFA circles or European club association circles but in terms of real action and sanctions and fines and points deductions uh, no because ultimately they've proven a willingness to move away so all it would you know you don't want to piss these guys off too much because they are the drivers, they are of the revenue, of the interest, they generate the most money, the eyeballs, and they still, you know, the, the other 14 Premier League clubs still really need these people. Um, so I, I think it would be an act of self-harm, really, to do that. Where it could be interesting is if the government in the UK introduced some sort of charter that says, in the future, um, football clubs who, you know, who play in England can only abide by FA... Premier League, UEFA, FIFA approved competitions. Mm. So you don't feel that this this week has shown that there is only really this game in town, that there's not this El Dorado, this Shangri-La available for them to kind of think about disappearing off to? Like I say, I still don't think it's impossible if they, you know, if they have a strategic plan. I think one of the biggest problems was that when you have so many successful people put together um, in a very short space of time, working with five different PR agencies in five different countries... Um, I think the uniformity of a plan just wasn't there. Mm. Um, and I don't know whether these people would ever be capable of doing that. If they were, it becomes a far more dangerous proposition. The guys might disagree. I just wondered as well on the Premier League point, the extent to which the ultimate aim of the, the six that moved was to leave the Premier League fairly soon and for that midweek Super League to become their main league. And if they were kicked out, they almost don't look like the bad guys so much. Um you know, do, do you feel that was the ultimate aim, that that midweek league would become the main league and they would just ultimately leave the Premier League fairly soon after starting it? Yeah, and I think that's still, that's still a, a threat that can hang over them. It was quite interesting. Like When I was talking to people close to the, the Super League project um, between Sunday and Tuesday, the, the sort of arrogance of, no, no, we can continue playing in our domestic leagues. We'll just have this different midweek European competition and, and, and they'll fall in line and it'll be okay and, and you're listening to this saying but but why would it be okay in what world would Leeds United accept you know a possible future where they finish third in the Premier League and then can't access the European competitions it was just it, it was so it was so bizarre and so naive that they thought that that could ever happen but I think I do think that you know the plan at that stage was very much we can crack on with the domestic leagues despite whatever damage that would do to the domestic broadcast deals. Because, you know, if you're Sky Sports and all of a sudden your Premier League product ha- doesn't have the jeopardy of a, of a top four race, um, as invigorating as that always is, um, they consider it to be 
you know, a crucial part of the product. So if you change the products, then Sky Sports would have wanted to renegotiate that deal. And, and that was the story of broadcasters all across Europe. We are going to renegotiate. We will take legal action because you are fundamentally altering the products in the middle of a right cycle. This is why I think that there should be a points deduction, even if it's just a cosmetic one. That's, so I just think if you look back at a league table from this season in 20 years and six teams have got a, an asterisk next to their name, I think it, it's kind of like marking a, a castle shame. that you've... The shame. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so it should be there in black and white for future generations because... You know, other clubs have had to to do that, for, or supporters of other clubs have had to endure that for for a lot less. Well, yeah, Duncan, as you were saying, Arsenal once got deducted two points for tackling Dennis Irwin, and this feels a bit bigger than that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess the issue is, I, I'm not sure people in general want points deductions for off-field things. That was a, a points deduction for the conduct of the players. I mean, if there is a points deduction, personally, and I'm not entirely against that. I'd prefer it to be next season's league table than this season's league table. I don't think people, with a few games remaining, I don't think people want first against second decided in a court or something. But if it was, you know, as has been the case in, for example, Serie A after Calciopoli, when mm. everyone knows what the, the points uh, penalties are at the start of the league, I think that's a slightly different situation. Gives it an extra bit of drama as well, then, the next season. Adam, do you think there's any chance that the Champions League reforms which had been voted through on Monday, which were largely due to this threat being continually kind of waved in UEFA's face, can be reversed? UEFA have left things a bit open for the format, which is due to start in 2024, to be revisited. What do you think? I th- honestly, I don't know. Um, I, was, I was thinking about this this morning because what's happened with... Um all of these 12 clubs resigning their positions from UEFA and the European Club Associations, it now means that the two most prominent forces in European football are Bayern Munich and Paris Saint-Germain. Now, if I'm Bayern Munich and Paris Saint-Germain, I'm not that worried about the those extra places for the coefficients because generally I'm coming first or second, worst case scenario in my own league. We don't really need this. Um, so I therefore wonder, is there something else that they would want is it, you know, an even bigger slice of the television pie or, or something along those lines that, that could therefore replace it if they're able to lead that conversation as also a, a little bit of a riposte to particularly the English clubs? I think the, the, the coefficient placing is most important to the English clubs because, as, as I said before, the top six clubs go into every season knowing that, that they're at risk of not being in the Champions League the next year. So if... If they wanted to really give a slap in the face to the Premier League and to English clubs, I think that's that's the thing that they could take off the table. On the points deduction, nothing would show the competitiveness of the Premier League than City winning the league despite having like a 15 points deduction or something. (laughs) (laughs) Feels fairly likely. Adam Crafton of The Athletic, whose uh, summary of, of everything that's been happening and no doubt uh, of further developments in days to come can be found at theathletic.com. Speaking of developments, so Thursday morning, I saw Man United fans uh, protesting at Carrington, uh, actually taking to the training pitch where Ole Gunnar Solskjaer had to go and negotiate stroke, explain the, the players and manager's position to them. So signs that for all that victory was declared on, on Tuesday night, a lot of dissatisfaction, quite rightly, is still out there. We've seen Ed Woodward announce that he will be stepping down, although it's totally unconnected with the fact that he, this whole thing blew up in his face. Uh, Duncan? 
I was just thinking it was a good job he hadn't taken the players on one of their heritage trips to the cliff, the old training ground today. It would have backfired. But, um, I mean, actually, I thought it was quite interesting this week with the the way that clubs um, were able to kind of uh, use their social media. So you saw clubs like Wolves and Leeds kind of doubling down on kind of inter-club banter. You know, Wolves saying they were the Premier League champions from a few seasons ago and Leeds calling Liverpool Merseyside Reds, the Pro Evo name in, in their stuff. But then conversely, all the big six teams had, to, from from their normal content, had to switch to this incredibly, well, either not post or this incredibly sombre, an update will be available and all this stuff. And it, was, <laughs> it, it was just a really kind of stark contrast, which I quite enjoyed. I mean, there is still a serious issue out there of, of, of what happens to the people who were prepared to damage everybody else's interest and in a very dramatic fashion, just because they felt like they could make some money from it. Price of Football, Kieran Maguire, uh, writes, given that Leeds were fined 200k for watching a training session through a hedge, how much will the Premier League and UEFA fine the greedy six for sitting in on commercially sensitive broadcast and commercial negotiations while plotting their own rival competition? I mean, the level of duplicity, as, as Chefferin was, was was highlighting, is, is quite staggering. For them to just pitch up at the next meeting as, as if... Nothing's happened. And Yelly's still in charge of Juve. The, obviously, the Glazers are still at uh, Man United. And we, we've seen protests come against them before without any great effect. JW Henry at, and the FSG at, at, at Liverpool. Do we think in the weeks to come that there will be any further uh, impact on, on, on the people behind this? I have to say, I was actually kind of surprised in some ways. And, and this shows the level of... Um, I don't know, the extent to which these owners can almost do what they like. I was kind of surprised that heads did roll and that people were stepping down because often these guys are so brazen. And we've seen that with some of them, you know, that there have been some um, club owners who, you know, have barely apologised, if at all, and have just carried on as if nothing's happened. That I was, yeah, I was almost surprised and encouraged that some some did take responsibility. But I don't, I don't know how much you know that will be forced upon them. I just don't know if those organisations have the teeth. And as Adam says, the Premier League is so enthralled to these clubs in a way, and so needs them um, for broadcast deals, etc. That it is still questionable how much power they have over them. You can kind of plot their response, I think, based on how much that club uses tradition and history in part of their kind of identity. So if you look at, I think Liverpool and Arsenal struggle the most in this because, you know, the Marble Halls and Herbert Chapman and Bill Shankly and, and the cop and this means more and all that stuff. You know, Arsenal apologised in their tweet when they did it and, and John Henry came out with a statement. I think they've had more to lose um, in that context than, say, you know, United maybe or, or Spurs. But like Stan Kroenke is so remote and seemingly without shame and and disengaged from the club. I I just don't know how much this is going to have any effect on him. Um, I mean, I think it's been announced that Josh Kroenke is going to attend an Arsenal fans forum uh, today as we record. So maybe that's a step. But yeah, I I would genuinely be really surprised if someone like him was, was particularly hit by this. I do, yeah, I don't mean he would be hit so much as more of the the club's kind of conversations with its fans. Is Their PR be, as well. Yeah. My concern amongst all this, and, and the reason I'm not dancing on the streets, is because I think we're in a worse situation than we were a week ago. You know, this plan was invented on the Sunday. It was killed by the Tuesday. If you'd been in, uh, you we know, somewhere... Them. Sorry. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, if you'd been somewhere without mobile phone reception and ignored it all, you'd come back and what would you have found? You'd find that, one, UEFA have waved through the reforms we discussed earlier. I'm not sure people have completely grasped how strange that is. 
you know, the new system, Real Madrid could finish 15th in the league and they'd still be in the Champions League because of their coefficient. I mean, that's the most unmeritocratic reform the Champions mm. League has ever seen. The second point, and I think a really good point from Adam that I haven't really seen made elsewhere, Bayern and PSG are now in charge. And let's not kid ourselves that Bayern and PSG were not involved in this because they're too, you know, too morally pure. Philanthropic. I mean, they're, they're the biggest two offenders in Europe in terms of being, you know, being the elite, being just winning their league year after year after year. So I, I just think we're in a worse situation than a year ago. And uh, it's, it's good that this iteration of the Super League has been defeated. But if you want competitive football, I'm, I'm not really sure what good is going to come from this. All right. Well, fingers crossed that UEFA do revisit the uh, provisions for the, the the extra places in this new Swiss model um, Champions League, which is due to come in in 2024. I mean, I guess the the positive might, you know, if, if you were returning from two days, you might, uh, without phone reception, you might be thinking suddenly there's this movement and fans have shown, you know, what they can do. So I guess it's the extent to which you think that will shape, that can shape football um, in the future, you know, we have now. I mean, I was thinking, you know, you go back a year and clubs reversing their furloughing decisions, pay per view games this season were taken off the table. Now this project big picture. So I guess it's a question to which that is, you know, a genuine movement and can affect real change. Or if, as you say, things like the UEFA reforms will just go ahead and will kind of get used to that. I mean, I agree with you. I think, I mean, having not just supporters on the board and that kind of thing, but having a system where fans have a proper say is a good thing. I think people are being massively over-optimistic in, in some ways, talking about the, you know, importing the German 50 plus one model, for example. One, I don't think that can happen here legally. Two, again, you look at the situation in Germany and that's not creating competitive football. Mm. And I would still question how you get from there to, you know, what I would desire as an endpoint of, of a more competitive league. I don't understand how having fans on the board of these big six clubs or indeed every club will end up in a situation where you don't have the elite continuing to, to move away from the rest and, and have a, a less competitive league than ever. Well, we'll see what happens in the days to come. As I say, there is leeway in UEFA's statement from the Exco on Monday for them to tweak and revisit uh, the way that this new Champions League format is going to come and who exactly gets extra places. So we shall see. But the football, eh? Where were we before we were so rudely interrupted? Well, City, of course, are miles clear. Uh, beneath them, you've got a bitter battle underway for top four spots. There was all that business with Mourinho at Spurs and, of course, a League Cup final coming up this weekend. We'll get on to all of that next. So it's the business end of the season and we need some results quickly. Welcome to the Liverpool Q2 offside. Let's brainstorm. Hendo. Well, I spoke to HR and they got spare training and development budget. How about a new training ground? We tried that, it's too windy. Robbo. Uh, how about we reward good performances? Oh, for, no idea is a bad idea. Let's uh, let's take it offline, yeah? Trent. Well, Gareth won't pick me. Uh, no. I need results, not excuses. Yes, Liverpool need results, but have they left it too late? Check out the Paddy Power site for the latest top four markets. Paddy Power. 18 plus, begumbleaware.org, T's and C's apply. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. 
The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. Well, since our last show, Leeds drew 1-1 with uh, Liverpool in that kind of weird nothing-matters limbo of Monday evening. Tuesday, it was Chelsea getting held 0-0 by Brighton at Stamford Bridge. On Wednesday, Man City beat Villa, and Spurs came from behind as well against Saints in Ryan Mason's first game in charges interim boss. Charlie... There's been a lot, a lot of spurs for us to talk about. Josie out, Ryan Mason in, plus the League Cup final this Sunday. But let's start with Josie. Ding dong, the witch is dead part two. Why fire him Hmm. this week, though? I think it had got to the point where, you know, it's it's all about European football. That's the absolute bottom line financially, reputationally for spurs. And they were at a point where it was looking like that was becoming unlikely. The direction of travel was so in the wrong direction. And I think, you know, Levy thought, can they get a bounce, um, both for that and also the cup final? Um, you know, and the early signs suggest maybe, just maybe, that will happen. Um, but yeah, I mean, it got to the point where it was, you know, we know the relationship between him and some, not all of the players, um, you know, had, had had broken. And there was just no real point waiting. I mean, it was pr- pretty clear that he wasn't going to be in charge next season. So I think he thought, well there's still time to salvage this one and and it shouldn't be forgotten Spurs have got a pretty presentable run in and they've been they've been good this season at beating you know teams below them so there is still quite a lot to play for and we'll get onto it but after winning yesterday I think they're now what two points off the top four teams around them have a game in hand but even so like there, there is still a lot at stake so I think Levy felt yeah, it was it was time to act decisively rather than wait mm. Wednesday evening for the first time this season after being behind at half-time, they came back to win a game in the Premier League, which is certainly a great start uh, for Ryan Mason. Spurs fans really delighted with his appointment, meantime, as the interim boss. What, what, because of the what the, the terrible injury he had? Or, or Charlie, what's the, what's the story there? I mean, there, I think there are lots of factors there. He is like the antidote to Mourinho, isn't he? I mean, he is so uh, enthusiastic. He's so Spurs fans feel a connection with him he's very popular as a player very committed I think yeah there's that uh, really nice arc to the story as well of his career being cruelly ended by injury and here he is at 29 the youngest Premier League manager he's going to lead the team out at Wembley he's very well thought of at the club as well you know very smart um, smart guy keen to learn so I think you know he has a good reputation obviously he's been working with the young players so it just feels quite refreshing. And, you know, you saw him yesterday because I was thinking about this, you know, that the game itself was actually, it wasn't great. You know, they, they were better in some respects, but they were still playing against uh, a team that are in terrible form, looked knackered from the weekend and lost their best player just before Spurs turned it around, really. But it was just the fact that he was positive. You know, he was talking about how proud he was of the players. And I think for Spurs fans who have just had this cloud hanging over them for the last few months where it's been this kind of spiral of negativity just to have someone come in and you know bring some energy some positivity and a guy who they feel is one of their own you know Mourinho was never one of their own at all so I think that contrast has just you know really re-energized them. Ollie Gunnar Mason is what you're saying. <laughs> There, there were there were some good tweets yesterday of people, you know, the Rio Ferdinand give him the contract now um, <laughs> stuff about Ryan Mason. Um, you know, that's the thing. I, I think everyone's realistic. I don't think people are saying like this is necessarily a, a long term solution, but it doesn't have to be. Like they've got, as I say, after this five, what is it, five more league games, 
few really winnable fixtures in that time. They've got a cup final on the weekend, which is a bit of a free hit. I mean, I don't think anyone was expecting to win that game under Mourinho. Seems extraordinary given Mourinho's reputation. And I know this point's been been well made, you know, as this he came in as a serial winner and you're sacking him on the eve of a final that he was brought in to win and replacing him with a 29-year-old with no uh, top-flight managerial experience. So it kind of shows how, how, how far he fell at Spurs. But yeah, I, I think it's... Yeah, it's just hoped that they'll, they'll get this little bounce and that'll be enough. In in, in longer term thinking, uh, we hear reports of contact with Marcelino of, of Athletic Club de Bilbao. And also, um, any thoughts on what this change and the fact that Mourinho's gone might mean to Harry Kane and this supposed declaration by the Spurs forward that he intends to leave the club this summer? Well, Kane got on very well with Mourinho. Um, he... He had a lot of respect for him, enjoyed working with him. And from a Kane perspective, you know, why wouldn't you? His form this season has been sensational. Um, you know, arguably his most complete season of his career. His numbers are astonishing. Um, so I don't think Mourinho going will make him think, oh, now I want to stay. You know, he's been pretty clear that it's it's about whether they'll be in the Champions League next season. You know, he turns 28 this summer. Um, you know, it's one thing, the fact that he hasn't really won as much as he should have done in his career. I think you can probably make peace with that. But if you're not playing in the the competition that befits your talents, you know, I mean, the, the Europa League is so far beneath him and it may then not in any European competition. So I think that's really the important thing. W- with that in mind, obviously, it would be foolish of Daniel Levy not to have Kane in mind, um, you know, when he's thinking about who the next managerial appointment is, you know, someone who he can sell to Kane as, look, this is a, you know, a real project. This is an exciting um, uh, project to be a part of. So that should be part of his thinking. And it could make a difference. But I think ultimately it's 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 about Spurs getting in the Champions League. Mm. And them um, getting the money that they would ask for for Kane. How long is his contract for? It expires in 2024. So there's still a while left. That's the thing. I mean, Spurs do hold the power on that. You know, they're under no obligation to sell the question mark as well as to whether anyone can afford him, you know, in this current climate. And if and those clubs that can afford him, you probably want to go Haaland or Mbappe, given how much younger they are. And the fact that Kane does have this slight uh, concern with injury as you know, evidence at the moment. Right. Well, then Sunday, the League Cup final, we don't know if he's going to be fit for it. I think many of us had written this off a bit as a contest because it was against Man City. But their recent wobbles against Leeds and, and, and Chelsea and the feel-good factor around Ryan Mason and, and Bale's wonderful uh, goal against uh, Southampton. D- does it mean we actually have a game on? What do you think, Michael? I would still have Manchester City as strong favourites, but there's a kind of... I mean, whether it happened last night, I don't know. I, I was watching another game, but there is an element of the new manager bounce that maybe will just give Spurs a little bit of something extra because it did seem like the the belief had drained out of him when you look at... I mean, there was that Son post-match interview against after one of the games I just thought was just telling about the whole situation. You can't go into a cup final looking to win it if your players are in that mood. So maybe that, uh, that cloud has lifted, but I'd still have City as, as strong favourites. City are so good at kind of surgically cutting apart their opponents. And so often I've gone into games... You know, thinking, oh, maybe, maybe there could be an upset here, and then that they are just—they're so mechanical and you know, good at kind of just whoever they're playing, playing the game on their terms, and actually making it hard for teams to even lay a glove on them. So it's going to be a huge, huge challenge. And you know, what a, a feather in Ryan Mason's cap if he could pull that off, because 
that that is a huge huge task against a team who just hoovered up this competition in the last few years but they have won it the last three seasons Spurs are looking for their first silverware since winning the League Cup under Wandy Ramos 13 years ago they have beaten City once already this season 2-0 earlier on in the campaign of course City then re- returned the favour more recently with a 3-0 of victory but uh, they're also coming off a, f- a, a sterling performance coming from behind against uh, Aston Villa with uh, Phil Foden looking especially brilliant Duncan sorry I know you wanted to weigh in on this was it anything to do with Phil Foden no it's still Ryan Mason and how young he is he's a uh... He's only been alive for uh, six of the eight sponsors of the League Cup, which really made me feel old. So he missed out on Milk and Littlewoods um, coming in in the Rumbelows era. So, yeah, could that, that affect only... him on Sunday? You you wonder whether he'll understand the heritage and the mm. history of the, of the competition. So it is a concern. Yeah, I just want to say on Mourinho as well. Like, if it was any other manager, I think there'd be quite a lot of sympathy for sacking a manager a week before a final that he'd taken a team to. I mean, that feels like quite a savage blow, but. I don't think you know sympathy and Mourinho go hand in hand for many people, and it's kind of just been accepted. But um, that's a, that is quite a harsh thing to do, and I can't think of too many precedents in this country. Sweetened by a severance package rumored to be around sixteen million. Mister Underscore says, "I wonder which manager has collected the most severance in their career. Surely the special one has the most special bank account. I don't know. I mean, it's got to be up there. Conte has he picked up? Well, he has, I suppose. Decent but... payoffs. Hmm." I wonder. Anyway, don't really have an Ranieri answer. will be up there, I reckon, as well. Just Do you think? Through sheer number of clubs, yeah. I mean, also, on the on the thing about him being sacked before the final, he's basically been done over by the fact that they moved the final back two months in the... Well, totally. With fans coming in. I mean, usually it would be the end of February, usually. So uh, I, I do feel slightly sorry for him about that. Although also, conversely, I think that kept that in a way kept him in the job for longer because he always had that in his back pocket. Um, so it's strange that then it's got to the it's like well they are in the final they don't have that to come it's odd that then he's got this close and then they've pulled the trigger he needed it in March it was like February's too early (laughs) April's too late mid-March that that good (laughs) Michael you mentioned fans coming back for this and each club will have 2,000 fans in attendance at Wembley which is of course Tottenham's second home uh, really City will be without John Stones who got sent off against Villa Wednesday night no word yet on whether Kevin De Bruyne will be available, although reportedly he could be fit for that. Would Pep risk him, though? Because they got Paris Saint-Germain in the Champions League just a few days later. You would think not. He might have to do a, like he did against Watford in the FA Cup final, just come on and you know get involved with the fifth and sixth goals, whatever it was. So, Well, that's coming up then on the weekend. Man City, Michael, you mentioned you were watching a different game on Wednesday while Spurs were having their come-from-behind victory against Saints. That presumably was the title decider, effectively, in the WSL, which you called the best domestic game in any league I've seen all season. And you watch a lot of football. Well, that's loose, and it presents the opportunity here to Kelly. And Mewis was waiting, and it slides, and hand in! An equaliser for Manchester City! It's Lauren Hemp who's got it! And they're still going, they're still fighting here, Manchester City, in this title race. I mean, funnily enough, this was essentially a title decider last year as well. We didn't really know it at the time, but it was a three-all draw, and that meant that Chelsea won the league on points per game, just ahead of City. Had City got a late winner then, they would have won the league. Um, But yeah, it was an excellent game. City needed to win. Chelsea content to play for a draw. Leaves Chelsea in the driving seat. Uh, With two games remaining, it would be very surprising if they slipped up from here. 
The only slight issue is that Chelsea do have the two semi-finals of the Champions League against Bayern Munich. So their attention will be on that. Obviously, in terms of fitness terms, it'd be very difficult as well. Mm. But yeah, I just thought it was a good game. City, you know, needed to win and didn't. But they're just a good side to watch, I think. Particularly Hemp and Kelly, the two wingers um, who've both had excellent seasons. Hemp, particularly over the last couple of months, has been excellent. Um, so yeah, it was just a, just like I say, a really enjoyable game and City could have won it. I mean, uh, they had two good chances late on. There was a brilliant save from the Chelsea goalkeeper Berger from Hemp's header, and then Lucy Bronze in about the 92nd minute just stormed forward and had a header dropped a couple of yards wide. Um, yeah, really enjoyed it. Okay, well, it should be a cracker as well. The first of those semi-finals against Bayern, which is coming up on Sunday for Chelsea. All right, well, next up, let's move back on to the Premier League and other things happening in that. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Keep listening for Michael Cox versus Matt Davis Adams in the Intertotally Cup, sponsored by Paddy Power. And it's live-ish. Ooh. Quarterfinals getting underway today in the Intertotally. Duncan... We'll be up against Sasha in a future episode. We'll also be looking forward to Horn Castle against Laurence. Have that for a European Super League clash thing. <laughs> Jack Lang takes on Benji Lanyado, but as you've just heard, today it is Mr. Intertotally, Michael Cox, taking on Matt Davis-Adams, who he dispatched in the first round last year. Michael, how are you feeling about this? Um, very nervous. Matt's a very uh, dangerous opponent. He said, reading off a piece of paper. Who, of the other, just assuming you were to get Tweet through. Tweet something like. Yeah. <laughs> just assuming you were to get through. I don't know if this is dangerous, how you feel about that. But who would you be most concerned about from, these other, from the other six quarterfinalists? Um, I mean, I think it's quite an uneven draw, actually. I think Ooh. I'm on the difficult side of the draw. I mean, you look at the other one. I mean... Someone like Jack Lang will probably end up getting to the final. So it's, it's very <laughs> unbalanced. Actually, Benji looks Benji looked good in his first round game. Mm. I, I mean, yeah. I don't I, I don't think he was he was in it last year, was he? Benji? No, he came he's... in on a coefficient package. But yeah, so, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he's he's a little bit of a he's a bit of a he's almost like the Denmark ninety two. I would say I don't know much about him. Could be a surprise package. Michael, how how much of a factor as well your narrow defeat to Charlie Eccleshare and the football cliches? out of control quiz last week <laughs> has, has yeah. that affected your preparation not no, ideal it, a lot no, of it wasn't ideal but different competition and you know sometimes that just rejuvenates your uh, your form worst time to play you in a way <laughs> yeah. what um what was the question that swung it for charlie eccleshire charlie 
It was a one-question quiz where Adam plays uh, an excerpt from an episode of the Premier League years, okay. and the contestants have to guess the year. And um, it was ninety-seven, ninety-eight, and by milliseconds, I, I just got there first. What? Did, sorry, what was the clip that he played to identify it? It was the September uh, news clip. So it was Chumbawamba's iconic hit was playing. Mm. And then the, the first excerpt of the, the news was that Mother Teresa had died, which instantly made me think must be September 97, 97, 98. But it was, it was incredible. It was incre- <laughs> an incredible contest. Wow. A semi-regular and beloved feature, of course, of the, uh, the Football Clichés podcast. I don't know where they got quiz idea from but anyway all right let's move on to another of our brilliant original ideas on this day yeah i know uh, on this day it's 22nd of april 22nd of april today on this day in 1964 we have one of the all-time classic football score lines to wit four far five east five four amazing uh, also on this day in 2012, and this is a little bit coincidentally, there was a 4-4 in the Premier League, which proved quite significant. Man United, who'd been 4-2 up against David Moyes' Everton, ended up drawing 4-4 after the Toffees got two goals in three minutes in the final stages. Neville finds Marouane Fellaini, who's given them a scare once. It's Pino! And can you really credit it? It is 4-4! This extraordinary title race takes another unbelievable twist. Curiously, that season, as I think we mentioned in our last show, there was exactly the same margin between United and Man City as City currently had, or at least had, over Man United coming into this week's set of fixtures. And as we all know, United ended up blowing it because City scored with the final kick of that season, although history doesn't record who actually scored the goal. Anyway, back to this season then. Man City have, of course, extended their their lead a little bit in the interim with that victory over Aston Villa. Uh, they're otherwise engaged this weekend. Man United will be at Leeds Sunday lunchtime, now 11 points behind, but with a game in hand. Behind them, that top four race looks extra spicy. You've got Leicester and Chelsea currently third and fourth. The next three teams all within three points of the Champions League places. That's West Ham, Spurs and Liverpool. Leicester play Palace on the Monday. They've got West Brom this Thursday evening too. Spurs have got the League Cup final. Liverpool host Newcastle. But the standout fixture looks to be Chelsea's trip to West Ham, fourth against fifth, currently only goal difference apart. This is, by any measure, massive. Well, this week marks seven years since Moyes was sacked by Manchester United. So I think it's it's quite a, a neat point that he can achieve full redemption if they if they beat Chelsea um, and take a big step towards uh, the Champions League so you know enjoy it while they can um, I mean I look this season because although they're below Chelsea on, on goal difference as you said they've actually won more games they've won more games than Liverpool and Chelsea after 32 games of a top flight season for the first time since 1962 so that puts into perspective really you know what a job Moyes has done but you do worry that the the injuries are starting to catch up with them so that mm. is that is concerning and Chelsea just barely concede any chances do they so They've only won one of their last five visits to the London Stadium. They were held to a goalless draw by Brighton on Tuesday. Were they possibly distracted by the delays getting in because of the crowd on the Fulham Road and the the kind of simultaneous implosion of the Super League plot, but they didn't really know what was happening about top four, etc. and all that, do you think? Or was it just Brighton being excellent? 
Well, I mean, it's the shock of seeing Petr Cech on uh, a road and Adam Lallana <laughs> playing well on a football pitch. A double whammy, I think. So, uh, I mean, as usual, Brighton played well but didn't score. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, Tuchel kind of pointed to that, didn't he, after the game, that it wasn't the whole circus wasn't the ideal preparation. I mean, I keep thinking with West Ham, surely, you know, it is just going to fall apart fall away because of all the injuries and I guess there was the defeat last week um, and I do I do still think that I think it's really hard on them they have had these injuries and as Duncan says Chelsea just don't concede chances let alone goals so you would think they would have too much but West Ham have been amazing at just somehow keeping themselves in it this season mm. So many fixtures which we really didn't give them a chance in they've come away with three points and mm. Michael? Yeah I agree I mean I think it's um, Moyes is very defensive in these games and Chelsea insists on dominating possession so I feel like the possession share could be one for Duncan to come up with a hilarious stat about. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, this was the fixture a couple of years ago when Jorginho set the Premier League record for completed passes. And as always with that stat, a lot of them were back and forth to teammates in the middle of the pitch. So, yeah, that's a, a fair shout. I was going to say it has strong Jorginho completed more passes than the whole West Ham team vibe to it. Well keeping it as just goal difference between them and the top four wouldn't be a bad result for the Hammers. That game coming up Saturday at 5.30. Earlier on that day, Liverpool, who are also in the race for Champions League places once again, uh, will be hosting a Newcastle side who are fresh from beating West Ham in their last match. Liverpool had that 1-1 on Monday in Leeds, which must have felt really bizarre for the players because at that point it realistically looked like they were qualifying for a competition that they were effectively not going to be taking part in. Did anyone follow that game particularly? No, that was I did the kind of classic Monday night thing of just tuned in for Neville and Carragher <laughs> and didn't really, didn't really watch the game. Right. There's never been a more disappointing cut to the ground for kickoff, I think, than that episode. <laughs> it's like, are oh, you actually showing this dead rubber? Great, thanks. I find that quite often with Monday Night Football. I'm really enjoying that first hour, and then it's like, but we are here for Burnley Newcastle. <laughs> it's like, oh, do we? Well, do we the, have pro- to? The, the problem is it, it clashes with uh, University Challenge and Only Connect, which, mm. uh, as far as I'm concerned, is a very strong competition. Okay. Will Newcastle be similarly tough competition for Liverpool? They haven't won a league game at Anfield for 27 years, but they are. Who, Liverpool? <laughs> hmm. No, Newcastle. Newcastle. They, they are informed, though. They've taken seven <laughs> points from a possible nine since that 3-0 defeat at Brighton just before the international break. I don't know. Leicester have got West Brom tonight and then Palace on Monday. Very good. Let, well, just on Leicester Palace, the, when I think of Leicester Palace, my, the image that comes to mind is um, Nigel Pearson wrestling James MacArthur to the ground for no discernible reason, which, <laughs> which I think kicked off the current paradigm because Leicester then went on an incredible run to stay up then obviously we know everything that's happened since and you know Leicester winning the league in 2016 is a a slight reason why the ESL will emerge you know the idea that uh, an upstart team can can come and and do that so but but equally it was cited by many people as one of the reasons why an ESL shouldn't happen so you know it, it was a strong piece of a strong card to play against the notion of a super league true but I think that James MacArthur should in some way mark the occasion and, and what you know what was behind the wrestling match no one actually knows Nigel Pearson never admitted it it was weird as well because Pearson's sort of smiling throughout 
and MacArthur's kind of smiling as well. Like, it's, I mean, Pearson's got this kind of maniacal thing going on, but MacArthur also just looks a bit baffled. Is it, it that one kind of, the... of wrestling? You know. <laughs> <laughs> Women in love. But um, I don't know. It just It's very it's a very odd picture now if you look it up, because obviously in a COVID era as well, a, a, a man wrestling another man to the ground is not a, the done thing on a football pitch. So, yeah. There we go. Frowned upon then as well, to be fair. Yeah, for different... For, Aesthetic reasons more than hygiene, I think. <laughs> uh, elsewhere in the Premier League uh, this uh, weekend, oh, Friday night, Arsenal take on Everton. Uh, there's drama as Sheffield United take on Brighton. Sunday, Wolves Burnley. Oh, I mentioned Leeds Man United. We didn't really get stuck into that, though. And there's another derby as well Aston Villa playing West Brom, which could be, depending on what happens this Thursday evening for West Brom away at Leicester, a huge game coming into. This evening's game, they're nine points from safety, but with a game in hand. So an interesting time to be having the derby with Villa. Villa won 3-0 in the reverse fixture at the Hawthorns. That was Sam Allardyce's first game in charge. Allardyce, Bruce and Moyes all in pretty good form at the moment. So a, a sort of you know victory for those old Premier League timers. Hmm. I mean, when you when you reel off those three fixtures, James, Villa against West Brom, Wolves against Burnley, Sheffield United against Brighton, Super League doesn't seem that bad. In <laughs> Whoa. Wolves, Burnley, that's like pure history. They're two of the five teams who have won all four English divisions. So, you know. What, what about Leeds, Man United? How, how about that for a bit of uh, a bit of heritage? I mean, that, that is a great fixture and, and on paper is a very good game. The only issue with that is in the reverse fixture, it was I think it was over after about 10 minutes, wasn't it? Mm. United went 3-0 three up. Three minutes, with... actually. Yeah, Scott that... McTominay got a brace yeah. inside the first three minutes. Mm. Incredible. It was very entertaining, actually. <laughs> well, it, it ended up 6-2, so it was eventful, certainly. That um, was um, no plan B day, wasn't it? Until Which wasn't repeated till well, Sunday, pretty much. So, um... mm. All right. Uh, how do you feel about Arsenal's game with Everton on Friday? Apparently there's going to be protests, cronky out protests at the Emirates, where Everton have never won. They haven't had a victory away at Arsenal since January 1996. Do you know who was in Arsenal's lineup that day, the last time they lost at home to Everton? Totally Football Show's very own Adrian Clark. Uh, yeah. It was a game as well. Ian Wright was captain, I think, for the first time, and he oh. celebrated with a kind of pointing to the armband in kind of classic Ian Wright was showmanship style. The, was he in the starting eleven or did he come on? Adrian's starting eleven. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Starting lineup. Uh-huh. Yeah, okay. I mean that game's that game it looks like Arsenal won't have Lacazette or Aubameyang, so be interesting to see what they do with that. Or Clark, unfortunately, won't be available. Maybe, maybe he will play. You know, the the injury crisis is is biting pretty pretty hard at the Emirates. They also have the Europa League semi final first leg six days later, so it may have a slight mid table end of season rest everyone kind of vibe. That's going to be huge up against Unai Emery and his Villarreal. My word. Anyway, all right. So, well, we won't talk about Wolves Burnley. We'll look forward to all the drama, the the sepia tinged drama that that. Uh, that that brings us on Sunday lunchtime. Oh, Duncan, go Sorry, on. just to re- reiterate that point. I mean, you know, Wolves, if a Super League had been set up in the late 50s, early 60s, Wolves and Burnley would have been in it. If a Super League had been set up in the mid-90s, Newcastle would have been in it. So, you know, all these clubs are kind of obviously strongly against it, but sometimes it's where the where history stops and, the you know, the fairground ride stops and you hop on, isn't it, more than the size of the club? Well, it's... 
something to consider mm. uh, while you're watching Wolves Burnley or Sheffield <laughs> United Brighton. <laughs> that yeah. should sustain you through that Wolves Burnley yeah. game. Excellent. All right. Well, Burnley is uh, still not out of danger. They are six points off the bottom three with six games to go. And I think West Brom have a game in hand on them as well. So uh, we'll see how all that pans out in time for our Monday morning show uh, here with Totally Football. Next up, as I quickly remind you that you can sign up for a subscription with The Athletic for unrivaled coverage on this business end of the season. You get all the articles, all the podcasts, ad-free and Q&As with writers, all for just £4 a month. Get details at theathletic.com slash totally. But on this Totally Football show, it is time now for the big one, the Intertotally Cup. The Intertotally Cup, sponsored by Paddy Power. Stadiums might not yet be full, but Paddy's offers are at full capacity. Get a free bet if one leg of your four-plus fold acca lets you down on all football matches and markets. T's and C's apply. 18 plus, as mentioned, quarterfinals get underway today in the Intertotally Cup. Duncan will be facing Sasha Horncastle against Laurence. Jack Lang will take on Benjamin Laniado, but today Michael's battle to retain his crown continues. One more time. Up first, he is the head of the table. He is the tribal chief. He is the undisputed intertotally champion. All tactics, all the time. Michael Cox. Michael, so here we are. Bold call, musically. Yeah, it worked last time. It will be thrown back in my face, I know, if I uh, fall down today. But uh, yeah, yeah, I quite like that as a walk-on thing. It does, you know, get you in the mood. Yeah. Well, your voice is fraught with tension. Of course, it is so difficult <laughs> to repeat. Liverpool are another example of that in the Premier League this season. And, and i got to say, your first round performance against Tom Williams may be a little bit less convincing than many people have been expecting. How do you feel ahead of this first quarter final? Yeah, I mean, I got that criticism throughout last uh, throughout last year's tournament, to be honest, James. But, you know, just about getting the job done. So let's hope I can do it today. All right, then. What's your charity going to be today, Michael? And, and what wager are you going to be staking any earnings on? Uh, I'm with Sparkle, again, as I mentioned last time. And I'm going for Sheffield United to beat Brighton mm. this weekend, just on the basis that when sides are mathematically confirmed as relegation, the players always say they play with a bit more freedom. So I wouldn't be surprised if there's an upset there. Crikey. All right. That's the champion. Let's meet the challenger. And his opponent. He is a commentator and a wrestling fan. But will he be able to lay the smack down or will he be left feeling red raw? If anything, he's hit that too well. He is Matt Davis Adams. Yeah, the chairman of the Filthy Six there with Why Can't We Be Friends. Matt, great intro music. It saw you through a first-round clash with Rory Smith, but now a David and Goliath clash with the reigning champ. A lot of neutrals are going to be rooting for you. How do you feel? Free of pressure, I think would be the best way to put it, James. There's, there's very little expectation on me today. Uh, obviously, memories of what happened last year when Michael whooped me in round one uh, still linger pretty fresh. But yeah, you know, as, as my entrance music implied, I'm just here to have a, a good time, if not necessarily for a long time. I see. I was resigned as a Man United chief executive, Matt Davis-Adams, <laughs> today. Uh, what's your charity and wager, Matt? 
Uh, my charity, like in round one, is Pecan, who are a food bank in Peckham. And my wager is going to be Derby County to get relegated this season because I hate them. <laughs> <laughs> I see. All right, well, Michael's up first with his questions. And Michael, if you're ready, here comes question one. At which club was Sir Alex Ferguson's first managerial job? Hmm. Uh, before Aberdeen, I'm going to go Dunfermline. East Stirlingshire. That's a fiendish start. Wow. Uh, question two. Against which country did Oleg Salenko score five goals in a single game at the 1994 World Cup? I don't know this. Uh, this was the last World Cup before I got into football, so my knowledge of it is quite bad. Uh, it's someone quite... Well, obviously someone quite bad. Um, uh, Cameroon. Is... The correct answer. Is it actually? It is the correct answer. That was a genuine guess. I'd, yeah. Wow. The reigning champion staring down the barrel of a 0 for 2 beginning. Pulls that out of the bag. Lindsay Hooper style, that was. Lindsay Hooper style. <laughs> All right, well, question three then. Which former Arsenal player is Diego Simeone's assistant at Atletico Madrid? don't know this, but I assume it's probably Nelson Vivas with the Ar Argentine link. Well, Michael, I'm afraid that you're absolutely right again. Unbelievable stuff. Coxie. Even when you don't know, you know. Let's move on to question four then. Two out of three so far. From which Italian club did Chelsea sign Gianfranco Zola? A Palmer. Is correct. And question five. Who is the British player with the most appearances in the history of the Champions League? So that's the most appearances of British players in the Champions League. That's a good question. Um, I mean, my first thought is Ryan Giggs. Would anyone have got more than Giggs? Uh, yeah, I'll go Ryan, Ryan Giggs. And the answer is Ryan Giggs. So that's four out of five for the reigning intertotally champion, Michael Cox. How do you feel, Michael? I think I'm very relieved. I mean, Zola was the only one I really genuinely knew. Um, so, yeah, they were tough questions. Mm. It's like a university challenge. Once you get past the first round, I'm really struggling. I just can't answer any. It does feel like they've, they've stiffened a bit in terms of the, the level of information required. And after that, East Stirlingshire whammy in, in question one. How were you feeling when I asked you about Oleg Selenko and you knew that you just didn't know? Yeah, I thought, I thought it was an African country, but Cameroon was, yeah, not a confident guess. All right, well, admirable stuff. Uh, Matt Davis-Adams, you got four out of five to beat. Let's get going then with question one. At which club was Arsene Wenger's first managerial job? Grandpa's eight. I'm afraid that's incorrect. It's Nancy before the trip to Japan. Question two, and you'll need all these now, Matt. Mm. 
Question two, who was banned for eight games after elbowing Luis Enrique in the face during Spain's game against Italy at the 1994 World Cup? I've got absolutely no idea. I will guess... Cameroon. Pierluigi Casaraghi. No, I'm afraid it's not. Do you know this one, Michael? Before your time on that, but... It wasn't, it wasn't Italian. Was it Zola? No, no, no. It was Mauro Tassotti. Of course, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, literally never heard of him, so... Uh, question three. Which former Arsenal player is assistant to Julian Nagelsmann at RB Leipzig? Bloody hell. Uh. <laughs> These are so hard. <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, Oleg Luzhny. Moritz Voltz. Going over for five here, I can feel it. Question four. From which French club did Tottenham sign Jurgen Klinsmann? Monaco. Correct. He's on the board. Question five. Who is the highest scoring British player in the history of the Champions League? Ooh, that's a good question. Uh, okay. British player. So makes it slightly trickier. Uh, I don't know. Uh, it doesn't really matter, I suppose. Uh, but I will say Ryan Giggs as well. No, it's Wayne Rooney. Mm. Wayne Rooney. Highest scoring British player in the history of the Champions League. Okay, the tiebreaker, we're not going to need that. But uh, Matt, I mean, you, you got one. It wasn't 0 for 5. No, it wasn't. And to be honest with you, my head had gone at the point when Michael got Cameroon because I thought if he's getting that, then I've got no hope. He needed at least three to go at. But as you saw, that was right. a, a limp effort. Back to last season's form for me. So hopefully... First round wins got me a ticket into next year's competition, but I'll understand yeah. if today's performance means it has not. I see, Matt. No, I will be delighted to to see you come back. As as for you, Michael, sometimes you just need one to go in off your ass, and then you're away. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, it was a classic case. They were really hard questions. I must. They say. were. Weren't I think they? Matt's Matt's were actually tougher than mine as well. So commiserations, but that yeah, was. But- uh, that was a difficult game. Fiendish questions, but you got four out of five and anyone else making it through the quarterfinals has got to be mightily concerned about that. We'll have more quarterfinal action from the Intertotally Cup next time out. But for now, many commiserations to Matt and congratulations to Michael. Well, a little bit awkwardly, Michael's still here, of course. Uh, but uh, yeah, c- congratulations again, uh, Michael, impressive stuff. No, four out of five. What do you think, Duncan and Charlie, on those questions? Tough. Yeah, some hard yeah. questions. Given I've got it next week, presumably on chronology, um, cat amongst the pigeons. But right. I'm not sure I back Michael's use of sort of Jedi skills to guess two of the four correct answers. But it is what it is. Right. I guess he'd say they were there deep in his unconscious. It's just being able to reach in. And pull them out. I mean, that is, you know, if if you watch um, like the Eggheads, you know that quiz show on BBC. The impressive thing is is how many they get right when they don't actually know. Mm. So I'd like to think I'm I'm on the same level as Judith Keppel or <laughs> that other one who likes the trains. The other one. Yeah. It's like winning when you're not playing well. It's a sign of champions, isn't it? <laughs> you, you, you've gone out and dug out a one nil at, at Burnley. Mm. Impressive. All right, well, we'll see who you get in the semis, uh, Michael, but more to come in next Monday morning's show. So uh, 
yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, excellent. Many thanks, though, for now as we wrap this one up to Duncan and Charlie and Michael and producer Charlie, too, and you, listener, to enjoy your weekend of regular football. And we'll be back early Monday morning from all of us here. It's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Keep up to date with everything totally at thetotallyfootballshow.com and follow us at The Totally Show on Twitter and Insta. Check out all of the Athletics Football podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places or listen ad-free on the Athletic app. The Totally Football Show is a Muddy Knees Media production and sponsored by Paddy Power. The Athletic.